Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Catch new episodes of The O Show for free, available on all audio platforms, including Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. For full video versions of the podcast, head on over to YouTube and StarWorldWideNetworks.com. The O Show is presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness is an inclusive, high-intensity fitness experience developed by the champ Floyd Money Mayweather himself. The best group boxing workout in the market, Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you asked me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Radder. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara? Absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Broadcasting around the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien, with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's definitely going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. So I'll, I'll jump into so uh, again for, for all the listeners. First of all, thank you so much for you know uh, being interested in in me and my background and allowing me the opportunity to kind of share just my background, some of my experiences with you and your audience. My name is Sean B. Bradley, CSB. Um, a lot of people call me SVB, you know, for because I use the V in my name. Like it's not Sean Bradley; it's Sean V. Bradley. I have it in my contracts, everything for the TV network. Um, I'm all about branding. You know, that's not a sticker; that's real. You know, I mean, I'm about uh-huh. this life. Yeah, no, for real. I mean, when you make $50 million on something, you'll probably get a tattoo too. You know what I mean? So um, I've been in, in business for uh, myself for almost 18 years, but like, that's not the cool part. People are always asking the origin story. So I grew up a little bit differently than, than most people. I grew up in Queens, New York, and in Brooklyn. And New York life is, is different, in my opinion, respectfully, than most other places in the country, you know, it's it's like what you see on TV and like the Bronx Tale or in um, you know menace of society. It's pretty lit, you know, in Queens and Brooklyn. I grew up uh, with extreme uh, violence, abuse, psychotic, you know, uh, parents uh, from mentally disturbed, you know, parents to just abusive, you know, to the point where it was extreme and where my my stepdad was a, an ex marine. And he would like torture me and my mom. He would shoot my mother up with heroin, chain her to the bed, just crazy stuff like that. And that's when I was like four, five, six years old, like that type of trauma. And that would uh, make anybody, you know, kind of act a little bit out and type of stuff. So I was always in trouble. But 
what's interesting when people are shocked when they find out, I've been hustling since I was six years old in the streets of New York. So one of my first hustles uh, that the TV show is going to kind of disclose is um, I was getting the catalogs from candy from school from like the, the previous, you know, uh, semester, you know, or the, you oh, know, yeah, yeah. And I would basically, you know, go to a different town. I'd jump on the train at six years old or seven years old because in New York, they didn't have school buses. You had you had a train pass or you had a bus yeah. pass, and that's how you get to school. So I would jump on the train and the bus with my pass, and I'd go door to door and sell candy that didn't exist. Most of the time, people would give me cash, and it wasn't a lot of money, but being six, seven years old, making, you know, $50, $80 in a day, you know what I mean? Like, I thought I was balling. I thought I was like Diddy. I thought I was like Trump or something. Like, I was making okay. money. Then I would take that money and I would flip it, and which is what you learn how to do when you're when you're in the streets. And what I mean by that is I had a hustle with, with uh, baseball cards. Baseball cards for me are like stocks for like adults, you know what I mean? But for kids, you got to know when to buy them, when to sell them, when the prices, you know, you know, inflate, you know, when, when things happen. And, you know, so it's like a stock market, but, you know, for kids. And so I would take the money that I made by selling candy that didn't exist. And I would take the profits from there and, you know, get into another business and make even more money. And so that was just the way that my mind was wired. Fast forward, I was in a boys' home from about 12 to 15 in a facility in New Jersey, in Millington, New Jersey, called Bonnie Bray. So Bonnie Bray is a state-run facility and that's a residential facility. It's supposed to be 18 months. I, man, I was so bad. I was three years. Some of the time, it was good. I mean, like, I learned some stuff, like, because I'm from, like, the, like, the hood, you know what I mean? So, like, the whole thing about trust falls and high elements and, and repelling and stuff like that, that... that I didn't know, like going to going to Gananaqua on 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 a, on a trip. That's the type of cool stuff was there. The bad stuff is that I was in a room with savages. You know what I mean? And yeah. so you, you gotta like, there's all disturbed or you know people from like uh, severe situations. One of the people that I was, you know, I was there from 12 to 15. One of the people that were in my in my uh, dorm that I was in actually grew up to be a horrific rapist and murderer. You know what I mean? He, uh, you know, abducted a little girl, he raped her, and he took a cinder block, and he crushed her skull in. Those are the type of people that I was in this boy's home with. You know what I mean? So just to put it in perspective, it's real life shit. But it was, it was definitely beneficial because it was like training camp for prison for me. You know, like, again, like I, I've been in trouble since I was a little kid and, and been through stuff. So when I was 18 years old, I'm skipping a bunch of stuff because I don't know how much time we have. But when I was 18, I got arrested by the United States Secret Service, DEA, task force, local police. It was crazy. And so I went to prison from 19 to 22. And, I, you know, it was real serious prison. It was maximum security stuff. This is where R. Kelly was in MDC Brooklyn, where El Chapo was and Strauss-Kahn in, in MCC Manhattan. When I was in prison, I was in the hole, which is administrative segregation for fighting. And my cellmate, and yes, people don't realize this, but in the federal system, I don't, I don't know how, you know, the state system works or what have you, but in the feds, 
you have cellmates unless your classification, unless they're afraid that somebody's going to, you know, kill you or something like that. Yeah, it's overcrowding in prisons. You know what I mean? So, and you know what my freaking cellmate was? The damn World Trade Center bomber. Right. People don't realize they, they they bombed the World Trade Center twice, not just once. Two thousand and and one was the, the 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 catastrophic situation, but in nineteen ninety three. They bombed it, you know, uh, and it didn't bring the, the things down, but there was, it was a pretty serious thing. They bombed the World Trade Center. So the guy that bombed the World Trade Center was my freaking cellmate. And so if you think about this, it's, it's utterly surreal. Now it's a digress. I'm going to go back in the story a little bit. So from, let's just say, when I got home from the boys' home from like 15 to 17, I got really involved in the skateboarding and to the rave scene. And just my natural born, you know, hustling, I went from just like buying a couple pills to buying, you know, more pills just to, you know, so I covered my cost of my partying to like, man, shit, like I'm, I'm able to pump like, you know, 20 pills, like in like 20 minutes in one of these raves. This is, the, this is like the mid nineties. This is like, like, like really lit with the rave scene in New York city. And for the people listening to this, I mean, no disrespect to people outside NYC, but like, I'm a New York City real raver, right. not one of these candy ravers with like pacifiers and, you know, ring pops and ish like that. No disrespect to those people, but nah, like I was into like just straight up techno and dancing and just like the whole like subculture of the drug scene. And I started selling hundreds of pills. So it would be, I'm like 17, 18 years old, making three to $6,000 partying, getting lit, hooking up with like hot chicks, just bawling. Then I, I go to New York City and I wind up working um, at, uh, not working first. I started like, you know, like going, I'm, I'm 18 years old. You can't even get into these clubs until you're 21. At 18 years old, I'm running VIP parties for models and celebrities in the hottest nightclubs in the world, in Limelight, Tunnel, and Palladium, right? It's just the craziest shit. We start, you know, um, working one VIP party, then another one. And then, you know, I'm bringing in the best type of ecstasy in. And we were importing ecstasy from Amsterdam. We had an international flight route because Amsterdam's a hot country. And remember, this is in 1995. Let's say 1995. You know, um, we didn't just go from JFK to there, and it wasn't me. It was my girlfriend. I was a drug dealer promoter. She was a model stripper. We were a match made in hell, right? So her name is Jessica. We'll leave her last name off. Her name is Jessica, super like beautiful woman. She actually was one of our couriers. And who the partner, one of the main people was a guy named Jade. He was a freaking actor from Baywatch. He was the guy that looked like Fabio, you know, Diesel with the long hair. Like, he was a freaking drug dealer. A lot of people don't realize that that whole bullshit about, um, you know, like actors are just waiters and waitresses. No, some of them are waiters and waitresses. Other actors are drug dealers because it's easier and faster to turn on make money real quick while you're trying to go through auditions. So what we were doing is that we would have these, these chicks fly from JFK to either a country like Germany or Belgium, from one of those com- uh, countries, they would take a train into Holland. Once they're in there, we actually had connections with laboratories there, which is not hard to do, by the way. You just need to go and make a connect. It's like now, you know how and people could understand this now, now how you could get weed anywhere at these dispensaries. Well, that's how the shit was back then, you know, uh, you know, in Amsterdam in the red light district and stuff like that. So what was crazy is that we were selling pills, good pills for like $30 to $35 a pill in these clubs in New York City. 
And then in Jersey, like the Jersey kids were paying stupid tax. Like they would pay even more or they would get crushed down and cut with something so you could make it go more. In Amsterdam, we were getting these for 2 to $3 a pill, but we were pressing 10,000 pills or more in a clip. So we would actually get to pick the stamps and so we are the ones that brought the Playboy Bunnies into the entire United States. Like that was us that brought the Playboy Bunnies to the, to the entire United States. We were bringing in 10,000 pills of E every five weeks, you know, to the clubs because it, like, it was like candy, man. Like we would run VIP parties and give free drugs out. We had, and this is all documented. I'm in multiple movies and there's been multiple things of our case. Um, matter of fact, there's a famous club kid named Michael Alleg that shopped up another club kid named Angel Melendez. And in 2003, Macaulay Culkin played him in his last movie called Party Monster uh, with um, Chloe Savonier and, and a couple other major oh. actors. Yeah, so this is crazy. So the, in the movie, it shows what our life was. He was my co-defendant in, in my case, and I used to work with Michael, you know, like a lot. And we, he would... They had something called the emergency party. So they have diff different VIP themes. And so all these club kids were dressed like doctors or surgeons with blood and stuff like that. And they would run around writing prescriptions for, for either E or K because you're high. So you can't really write full prescriptions. You get a letter, E or K. And depending on what prescription is, you go to the pharmacy and you get filled up on that stuff. I've done VIP parties in, in a place called the Silver Bedroom and the Police Room. The police Room was funny as hell. And the Silver Bedroom, we would have super like hot, you know, females and, 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 and guys, I'm not gonna say guys are hot. I'm straight. You know what I mean? But they, they had beautiful people, male and females walking around very, very few clothes on with trays. And instead of serving hors d'oeuvres, we used to have champagne flutes with champagne with, with GHB, which we used to call liquid ecstasy in them, or we'd have devil dogs with crushed MDMA in them. And so these were drug infused, you know, parties and man, Sex, drugs, techno. People were having sex on the dance floor. They were having sex in the in the bedroom. That's why it was called the silver bedroom. It got man. It got crazy. NYPD was trying to infiltrate, but we had like the people had NYPD. Not we. Sorry, I'm, I had nothing to do with anything. So you know, uh, people had NYPD on payroll. So we knew what was going on. And when they raided the the uh, the tunnel, you know, as a big fuck you to the NYPD. They, we, we took all of the caution and the tape and we wallpaper, we created a VIP room called the police room in the tunnel, you know? And so it was a fuck you to the feds and to the, the NYPD for, you know, constantly, you know, trying to infiltrate the clubs and things like that. I mean, it was crazy, man. We, I was part of some of the most incredible things in music history. So Tunnel was the first nightclub in the world to have a 48 hour dance party. We would go to the club on a Friday night and not leave till Sunday. That that party was a Grace Jones, Angelica Calia. I'll never forget Junior Vasquez was spinning. And so that shit is insane. You go to the club on, on Friday and you don't go home until Sunday. And I'm not saying you leave and take a shower. Like you are there right, you know, right. for 40 hours, like fucking partying, getting fucked up, making money. Man, I made probably about like 15 grand in two days, like just retailing shit, like, you know, like hustling in the clubs like over two days. So, you know what I mean? Like, it was, I used to sell bulletproof vests to crack dealers in Queens. People ask me, like, yo, like, how did you get into that? Because yeah, I'm involved in shit, you know what I mean? Or was involved in shit. And I would basically, you know, um, have my people, and we, we would talk around, and, and it, it, you know, these are straight people that put in work. And we, I don't know how it came up about bulletproof vests, and like, man, like, because somebody got shot or some shit like that, and we're like, damn, you should have had a vest. They're like, yeah, it sounds nice. What do you mean it sounds like? Yeah, I've, we could get them. You know, I'm like, well, why can't you? Who, who the hell's got vests? And I'm like, hmm. 
So this is a young kid. I, I'm, I'm like a teenager, and I'm like, I find a, a magazine called U.S. Cavalry. So U.S. Cavalry was a supplier for law enforcement, and they don't vet that stuff. See, people don't realize that buying stuff in some states is legal. In that same state that you could buy it, it's illegal to possess it. It is the stupidest shit in the world. Yo, my, my dude, we were getting Spectra level three vests, you know, with trauma plates that were put in. And <laughs> I was young in my marketing mind. I used to silk screen. I used to have a, a friend that used to silk screen. We used to put logos on the vest, like Superman logos, Batman logos, you know what I mean? And then again, I don't want to, you know, uh, say which sets. But then there's different gangs that have different ops or what have you. And we would sit around and have like circles with a line through them, like dissing the ops. And yo, people were loving that shit, you know? And then I've had, I had gang members that would actually like, yo, 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 shoot me some right here. You know what I mean? I'm like, you, and they would shoot to show how brave they were. I mean, it's, it's a level three spectrum vest. You should be good. And I'm not saying they brought a 44 out, but maybe like a 380 or 22, they pop, pop. So crazy street stuff, right? Oh that was one part of it. Then I, those are like the crack dealers and like the hoodlums that I used to, you know, flow with in Queens, Brooklyn, different level Italians, oh. Italians, very serious. That's where we're getting the counterfeit money from. And the counterfeit money, like Vice is going to, when, when the TV show comes, I, I tell this story and I told this on Brad, where we were getting sheets of counterfeit fifties. And we were getting them for anywhere from 25 cents to 50 cents on a dollar. I think it was like closer to 25 cents a dollar. And they would come in sheets. Now, I want to be clear. We weren't printing them. That's a whole other hustle. That's a whole other skill is to print them with plates or draw them or whatever. But what we were doing is when we get them, when we bought them, man, we have to curate them. Because they're super bright, at least the ones we have. And so you have to cut them into actual the bill shapes. So we use that arm with the saw like the teachers use. We cut the, 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 the paper. Then we have to boil tea. And we would dip the, the bills in there to stain them. Then I would have like, you know, like plants in my house, like regular plants, not pot plants, but plants. And get the dirt, put them on there. And then we have clotheslines and hang them across, you know, the bathtub and let them air dry. I mean, the, 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 our house, I don't even know how we didn't get raided before, you know. We had K cooking up. We had, you know, like a, like a pill, like a, you know, bagging, you know, factory thing here. We had counterfeit money hanging. For, like, bro, I, I was just young and stupid, the shit that I was doing. When I think of it now, like, oh, my God. Like, I, I, I could have been locked up for life with the crazy stuff that we were doing. So you kind of get a picture of this stuff. I got involved in a, in, a, in a gang, in an organization called TF, which is called Together Forever. So TF, that's all the stuff that everything is that, you know, that I wear and, and shit like that. And, you know, I'm very tight with uh, the founder of the organization. And this is where it gets even interesting. I didn't talk about this stuff, so I want to give you some different stuff. A lot of people don't know that, um, that TF has been around since 1984, and the founders, Paulie Zantz and, uh, you know, Stephen Zor and, and these people are like legends in the street in Coney Island. And there was a rap group, a famous rap group called Brooklyn Zoo. A lot of people that don't know hip hop are confused. They think that old dirty bastard, you know, uh, he was Brooklyn Zoo. But there's a song, Brooklyn Zoo. And if you listen to the words, it says, Brooklyn Zoo, shame on you for stepping to the woo. Brooklyn Zoo, shame on you for stepping to the woo. There was static with TF and with ODB, and cannot confirm or deny, but I'll say that people believe 
that when Old Dirty got shot in Kingston Avenue in Brooklyn, it was TF Brothers that lit his ass up for stepping out of line. Facts. Mm -hmm. If you look at, if you go to YouTube and go to Brooklyn Zoo, a couple of hits they had were Brooklyn Zoo, Masters of the Zooniverse, and then Brooklyn Zoo, Boo. They were actually signed to Big Daddy Kane's label, Cold Chillin' Records. They were a real bona fide thing. I'm going to say that the Wu-Tang Clan bit their style and their flow from Brooklyn Zoo, absolutely. They just blew up because th this was a way bigger organization. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, TF and Brooklyn Zoo was that thousands of members, not three or four or five or ten or whatever. You know what I mean? And I'm not taking anything about the way of his talent. I'm just giving facts. You know what I'm saying? Just facts are facts. And what's interesting is that Rab went to prison, you know, and Paulie went to prison, and, and that's where I met Paulie. You know, uh, like when I was on the street, Paulie was like, you know, a legend and stuff like that. I got to actually meet up with him in MDC Brooklyn Federal Prison, and that's where I got inducted into the organization in Brooklyn Federal Prison at 19 years old by the actual founder of the organization himself. So, and we became really good friends. As you can imagine, he actually saved my life later on. And I'll tell you that. It's not in the streets, in a near-fatal jet ski accident in Puerto Rico, but that's another crazy story. So what happened is they went to jail for anywhere from five to eight years, so Brooklyn Zoo disappeared. They reinvented themselves as TF Mafia. Now, RAB is, you know, was the, was the, and so, so TF is an organization, Together Forever is an organization. Under it, they have TF Mafia rap group. They have TF Body Art, which is a tattoo shop that was in Brownsville, right between Mother, Ga Mother Gaston, right out there, you know, in, in the fucking, in Iraq of Brooklyn, right? And so the rap group blew up. Um, they've got tracks with Max B, with Pat Poose, with a bunch of like real serious stuff and their flow is crazy. I actually became an investor I own 10% of a TF Mafia rap group. So I, I know a lot of people don't know that I owned because uh, they went to prison or they're dead right now. So uh, that's why the rap group's not there. And that's partially how I catapulted my wife, you know, from never being in a recording studio to boom, having, you know, 65 million views. She's got tracks with Meek Mill, with Young Chris, with uh, freaking Remy Ma, Papoose. Larry T, DJ Diamond Cuts, how I got some of that connection. The New York connection was through my TF family. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, Rab called Papoose, Papoose put on the track, and then we built that, that relationship with Pap and Remy. So now I'm in the entertainment industry. You know, I'm making music videos for major label, recording artists, platinum recording artists. You know, wifey's blowing up, doing TV, radio. She got like six interviews on Shade 45 in front of 16 million people on Junit Radio on Sundays with Miss Mimi, with DJ K Slay. I mean, this is real shit. During this time, we're, we're making a ton of money, millions and millions of dollars in the corporate shit. She's got tracks with Meek Mill. When Meek just got signed to Maybach Music, she's on the radio. We're doing good. She got the, the Style TV Network, the Tia Tamara Show, are licensing her music. I mean, like, she's, she's doing her thing. Then we get pregnant uh, with our fourth child, and we had a family decision. You know, it's like, what do we want to do? You know, she's already on radio, TV. She's already getting BDS spins. She's got, you know, clout. She's doing this. She was a Philadelphia Fashion Week hostess. Do we, and we don't, and I, I believe everybody has the freedom to, to choose. That's, that's not my business, what anybody else does. I don't give a fuck what you do with your pussy. That's your shit. You know what I'm saying? But for me personally, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't believe in abortion for me and my family. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't. 
and my wife doesn't either. So it wasn't a question for us if we were going to keep the kid or not. You know, but that's a life-changing thing when you're a freaking pop star traveling and touring and stuff like that to this. So it was crazy. We just stopped the Karina Bradley project. Like we're getting all like in the middle of everything being great, but people didn't understand that we already owned multiple companies, video production, training, this, that, and the other thing. It, you know, this wasn't our only thing. And this was only actually the minority thing. We only did it for three years compared to, you know, all the other stuff we were doing. So it wasn't hard for us to, to stop. And it wasn't that we stopped, we just stopped doing it like, you know, officially and as much time and energy. And we just focused and doubled down on our corporate businesses, which have grown and which have blown up. So I'm going to give a chance for, do you have any questions about that stuff so far or elaborations? Oh, I have a ton of questions. First and foremost, given everything that you just kind of laid out, at what age do you think you sit your kids down and tell them all of this crazy stuff? They already know everything. Really? Like, yeah, absolutely. My eight-year-old knows everything. They're going to the premiere. You know, I, I told them everything from the beginning. You know, wh why would I not? Wow. I, I mean, at that age, I don't know how. I mean, I guess your kids probably a lot smarter than I was when I was eight years old. Different times as well. Uh, sitting down and getting to absorb all of that stuff and thinking. Yeah, so let me be clear. So with my eight-year-old, I don't sit down and go through every minute detail. But my eight-year-old knows absolutely that Daddy w was doing bad behavior as a kid. Daddy was in a boy's home against his will for three years. Daddy went to federal prison with a lot of bad people for many years. Daddy did a lot of things that, that are not legal and not appropriate that daddy, you know, regrets that he, he did, you know. And I tell him, I say this, and this is also deep for your audience, I strike that. I don't want to say regret that I would never do now. Like, I wouldn't do the vast majority of this shit now, but I swear on anything sacred to me, I don't regret a motherfucking thing I ever did because I've never killed anybody, so I'm good. You know what I mean? Yes, I've done stuff that I regret people. I've hurt people emotionally, and I, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Nothing that I cannot, how do I say it? forgive myself for. And hopefully people, if they're in the right state, forgive me for you know, there's nothing I could like absolutely never take back. You know what I'm saying? So again, for me, everything that I did, stupid, illegal, or whatever, was an experience uh, and helped develop me as the human being and as the father, as the as the husband, as the professional, as the human being I am today. And I don't believe that I would be who I am if I didn't have those experiences, if I didn't sit in federal prison in solitary confinement, if I wasn't in fucking gang riots in prison you know, with Latin Kings and Nietas and, and the Lacks, like, straighten up, you know, like, putting in work. I mean, like, I've been through some crazy shit, you know? And again, it helps me be able to deal with everything I got to deal with as a serious uh, entrepreneur, as a boss, as a father, and, it, and my decisions are there. So I'm very grateful. I'm even grateful for the piece of shit father that I had that, uh, that was a deadbeat that was never there. I even have, you know, appreciation for the dude that used to whip my ass with a Tonka truck at four years old and have my ears and my face black and blue because those lessons showed me what not to do and what not to even contemplate doing for my kids. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. And you're going about it the absolute right way as well. What age was it when you first got into what you were doing where you thought, like, maybe this is a great opportunity or making a ton of money at such a young age, but at the same time, you kind of knew that it was bad news? Who was that first guy that you got introduced to? 
What do you mean, illegal wise? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, so like I told you, on my on my own, I would hustle or steal, and I was doing that from six or seven. But uh, I, again, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. I would say that where I started to make some decent money was when I came home from the boys' home. You know, when I was about fifteen to seventeen, when I started doing the raves. And it was nobody important, you know. It was just, you know, a drug dealer that that I met at at the rave party. And I just, I'm very, very gifted as a communicator, as a networker, um, as a speaker, and damn skippy as a closer. You know, I mean, I sold myself to this person that I, you know, could definitely take the product and, you know, I could sell it and I could do this and I could do that and that's there. But I would say influential person I would say when I started working in the nightclubs, this is where I started meeting powerful people. And I don't want to mention certain names, but I will just say that I met on an organized crime stuff, capos from, from families, you know, serious people, you know, on a, on a broken level. Um, in, in gang stuff, senior leadership in, in, in street gang stuff at this time. Um, prominent DJ. See, working at one of the hottest nightclubs in the world gives you access. Try to imagine my job. My job is to meet people. I have to have a quota to meet people in my head, right? And I've got to invite them to one of the most hedonistic, beautiful, sexy, fun environments in the world, the Tunnel Nightclub with sex, drugs, models, celebrities, etc. right? You know what I mean? So it wasn't a hard gig. Who's coming to these clubs? Now, I used to run ultra VIP parties. Tunnel used to have, on a Saturday night, 4,500 to 5,500 people in one spot, right? And here I am running VIP parties, giving out free drinks, allowing you in. The tunnel is the type of place that motherfuckers wait for four hours in the line in the cold just to get, no, you can't come in tonight. Goodbye. Fuck you. What? Yeah, yeah. Goodbye. And that's it. Say, I dare you to say some shit like that to a, to a freaking transvestite, right? You can't even talk. To, I don't care about gangster because, man, security be on you and you will never get into that club again. So uh, there was some stuff that popped off, but very rarely because this was the place that you want to be on planet Earth in any country. We had liaisons with clubs like Ministry of Sound in London and, you know, clubs in Miami and L.A. Like, New York is the hub of the universe for music and nightclubs. So when you're there, yes, you meet everybody, celebrities, drug dealers, models, entrepreneurs, DJs. So that's where I got really plugged in on, on, a, on a different level. But then when I went to prison... At 19 years old, I met powerful people in a, in a different area. Man, I can't make this shit up. Like, the shit that I'm telling you has been vetted, and you can see it. Like, you could Google this, what I'm about to say. In 1997, the United States government, the Department of Justice, Office of Inspector General, okay, they have something called the Office of Inspector General. That's the equivalent for the federal agencies of internal affairs, so there's no such thing as internal affairs for the feds. It's the Department of Justice Office of Inspector Generals. They raided MDC Brooklyn, okay? And they arrested 14 federal correction officers from the Bureau of Prisons, case managers, and social workers. Google the shit on a case called Operation Badfellas. Operation Badfellas was the Italians and the Russians were paying off 
all of these guards and the social workers and the unit managers, high-level shit, to get steaks, cell phones, vodka, wine, sperm, getting sperm out to there. And I'm going to tell you, because I don't give a shit anymore. When I was in Brooklyn Federal, I was chilling with the Lucchese's, you know, with George Zapola as a capital from the Lucchese's, George the Neck. 27 years, you know, or I think it was like 21, 27 years he pled guilty to for like 14 murders. You know, he was serious, you know what I mean? Him on the Italian side. So it was like him, James Gallione, which is Jimmy Frogs, uh, Charlie Tuna, um, Ray Saladino, who turned out to be an informant, you know, for the FBI in there, Ray Ray Domes, and a bunch of other Italians. Now, for me, I'm half Italian Sicilian, right, from New York, and I have a lot of connections in the street. But I was a Russian major at Leiden University. I'm not Russian, but I speak and I write Russian, you know, pretty damn well. So I'm a young kid, and I would liaison between the Russians and the Italians in NBC Brooklyn. So I got caught up in that whole shit, you know what I mean? But I just, you know, when they were asking questions, I'm like, I don't know shit. You know, that's it. I don't know shit. I'm just a kid. You know what I mean? And, and, and really, that's what I was. I wasn't, like, when I was in, when, with the Italians and the Russians... I just happened to be at the table at 19 years old with fucking people like George Zapola and, and this. But I became very good friends. This is a crazy story. I became very good friends with a guy named Vladimir Topko. So Vladimir is on the highest case ever in the United States history for Russian organized crime. There's a guy named Neponchik Ivankov, Ivankov means, means little Japanese. He is the highest... Russian organized crime person who ever has been in this country, ever. He did 10 years in Siberian prison. Crazy shit. So in when I was in NBC Brooklyn in 1996, their case had to be a couple years old. So if you Google Vladimir Topko, this guy had a PhD in macroeconomics. He, had, he was a former card-carrying member of the Communist Party. He served under two Soviet presidents. That's who Russian organized crime is. People don't, it's not like Italian organized crime or Mexican mafia. It's different. Russian organized crime, real Russian organized crime, not the bullshit, are, are ex-government officials, you know, politicians, connected people. That's who the mafia is in Russia, straight up. Not just thugs. And don't get me wrong. They get down. They put in work. You know what I mean? But they're not savages. They're very, very organized. And they're very, very... Uh, resourceful and they're very well funded and they have a lot of resources. So I became very good friends with him and he was, believe it or not, the senior Russian organized crime guy wind up being one of the most positive uh, influences in my life. Like I, I can't even, like he would look at me and a lot of people look at me in the feds and be like, oh my God, you're 19 years old and what were you doing? You're importing what from, from Amsterdam? Like, holy shit, like you're smart. Like, what are you doing here? And, and so I was getting, like, uh, feedback from, from, like, real serious prisoners, like gangster gangster shits. You know what I mean? Not people that play like, – people play these people on TV. You feel what I'm saying? And they're telling me – and so Vladimir would tell – like, I learned more Russian with Vladimir than I did at, at, at you know, taking a level 100 and 300 Russian lit courses and, and Russian language courses at Ryder University. Facts. And I became really good friends with him. He would teach me about macroeconomics, shit that I, I'm from Queens and Brooklyn, my dude. You know what I mean? Selling both professor crack deals. I never even thought about outside of New York. Forget about, you know, going to the Ukraine, to Kiev, to get, you know, uh, textiles or get, like, you know, fabrics and, you know, and bringing them from there. It just opened my mind up. And we became such good friends. 
he, you know, um, you know, exposed me to his family, like his daughters and his wife. And he kind of like adopted me, man. Like it was, was crazy. And we were, we went from NBC Brooklyn and then we, I wound up going to Allenwood, um, FCI, which is medium security. Cause I got into fights and shit like that. Cause I was, I was young and stupid and just trying to like, you know, be me. And, um, Allenwood was a higher security. So I started at Fort Dix, which is a low security I got in trouble, got thrown out of there, and I went to Allen, which is higher security, and he was there. And so, you know, which I really, it's crazy sound, I enjoyed Allenwood. You know why? Because the feds, it's true. You know, it, they have a lot of resources. I played tennis. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, we had a lot more resources than state prison. The facilities were great. You know, I didn't have a cell in Allenwood. We had, like, dorms and, like, like these stone things, you know, like it's a divider. So... Again, I was used to it from being in the boys' home. So anyway, when we got when I got out of prison, he still was in prison for a little bit. But when he got out, he invited me to Russia. My dude, check this out. So to go to Russia, I was on supervised release. I'm on federal. It's not called parole, but I'm on federal parole, so to speak. I had to get letters from the Russian government inviting me to, so I could submit to the federal parole board. Think about this. I'm a federal convict validated gang member and I'm on supervised release and I want to go to Moscow, Russia. It wasn't easy. Guess what? I got it happening. Because when the the Secretary of Transportation of Russia, you know, invites me to go over to Moscow for an international trade deal to put together to to figure out how to export used cars from the United States to Russia. So my first trip to Russia was in September 17th, 2001. Six days after 9-11 was my first trip to Russia. And I went to Russia from 2001 to 2007, and I spent months there. I've never in my life have ever been in a hotel in Russia. I've only been at my friend's house. He's got a flat, like a, like a condo in Moscow. That's like having a penthouse in New York City or in, like, you know, Paris or whatever. So in the center of Moscow, on Frunzetskaya Nab, that's the address, right? I, I, I chilled with him. I got to experience shit that most people would never even dream of. I got to, to go to the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow and sit at the theater where the czars sat. I got to go to the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. And yo, my dude rolled, rolled with the security detail. You know what I'm saying? Like security detail. Police, I got, I, I wish I was gonna know I was gonna talk about this. I've got like hats that, you know, like they slapped the hat right off of one of the militia. See, see in Russia, especially back then, I don't know what it is like now, but from 01 to 07, it was like a wild, wild west. Wild, wild west, meaning you get pulled over for speeding, whatever, you give them like literally, which is not even a lot of money, like this like, like dollars, you give them like 100, 200 rubles and they let you go. It's normal, that's what you do. It, it's, it's corruption, is, is, it's like how you tip people at, at waiters. That's what you, the police work on tips. Corruption tips, I swear to God, facts. And the way that the rules of engagement are, it's called Krisha, house. If you are, you can't just go to Moscow. I don't know what it is now, but back then in, in, in like the early 2000s, you can't just go to Russia and do business. Mm, no, you have to have permission and the ability. So the people that we were with were very, very, very cool people. So yeah, my life is really interesting, man. You know, like all this stuff, but those people were really influential. Um, I met another guy named Lee Mangan in federal prison. He got arrested for like $46 million of SEC fraud or something like that. And he was also teaching me about business and, you know, le legitimate business and things like that. So he really kind of influenced me. So, yeah, two major convicts got me on the, on the, on the path. But I want to be transparent to your audience and to you. 
when I was in jail, I wasn't ready, man. Like I was 19 years old. I was pissed that I was locked up. You know, I was angry. And I, and I felt like I was, you know, I, I hit the lottery. I'm sitting here with capos, you know, from that they, they made movies on these people. I'm sitting here with, you know, uh, just celebrity cases. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sitting with people that, that got arrested for two tons of cocaine from the meddling cartel. Where do you think they put them? Federal prison. That's where El Chapo was in the same prison I was in. So that's my point is that I was just connecting. I mean, I was, I was, I had plans to take over the world. Like, like, uh, have you ever see the, you know, the Michael Myers, you know, movies, whatever it is, like, um, uh, like Wayne's World and, and all oh, those, yeah. like, uh, man, like the, the whole evil genius, like Dr. Evil, like I, 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 I thought I was going to take over the world. So I never spent my whole three years in, in, in prison and three years in juvenile, my six years I lost in my life. Not once did I do anything to benefit myself on education, read, plan, connect, find Jesus, whatever, none of that. I was just trying to meet like connects. When I came home, here's the transition, is that I was working at, at Food Town, like as a deli boy, you know, and that shit wore off. Like, first, I was happy. After three years in prison, I was like, all right, yeah, let's go. Oh, yeah. I'm like, you want ham and cheese? What kind of cheese do you want? And I was, I, I, I was just happy to be out of jail. But then after a couple of weeks, that shit wore off, and I'm like, this sucks. I went back to Brooklyn, re-upped. I started, started pumping that, the, the, you know, that product in, you know, all over the place. And it was good. Money was coming in. And here's a weird part. I can't, I can't define what it is. I don't know if it was just Spidey sense. I don't know if it was the universe, laws of attraction. I don't know if it was Jesus or God. I don't know. But I will tell you this. Something came over me. And I said, I, I need to stop. I have a bad feeling about this. So at 22 years old, after a couple months being out of you know, prison and doing stupid shit, I just picked up all my stuff and I moved to Red Bank, New Jersey, and I, uh, with nothing, you know, like I literally had a backpack, a Walkman, a thousand dollars cash, and I rented a couch, not a room. I rented a couch for $500 a month. I rented a couch in Red Bank, New Jersey, but it's location, location, location. Got a job as a waiter. I sucked at it. And so, um, somebody told me I should sell cars. Game over. That's, that's the biggest thing that changed my life. I got into the car industry and it was unreal, man. It was unreal. It was like I could do everything that I've been training since I was six years old to do. Hustling, making phone calls, like, you know, what you need, what you got. I, I got this, I got that. Oh, you need you, you need someone to do a photo? Okay, I got to find it. So I'm networking, I'm doing this, I'm grinding, but I don't have federal agents kicking in my door. I don't have, you know, tech nines in the back of my head, like, run your shit. I don't have, you know, uh, people trying to kill me or lock me up for life. So I'm like, man, this is great. And I'm making money. And, and then they gave me a company car. So you, if you're a car salesman back in the day, and even still today in 2021, 2022, you know, they give you a company car, brand new car. So I was 22 years old, fresh out of prison, and I'm driving a brand new Mazda Millennia flexing. I thought I was lit, man. And then I, I became the number one car salesman, salesman of the month, salesman of the year. I, I kind of finagled my way into a management position after the first year. And fast forward, after a little over five years that I was a manager in the automotive industry, right? I, was, I left in 2003. The last dealership I worked at was Cherry Hill Nissan. I was making a little over 155000 So let's just say I was making about $155,000 a year uh, in my mid-20s as an ex-convict. And I threw all of that away to start my first company. Now, Dealer Synergy, you know, I've been incorporated since April 13th, 2004. So for 17 and a half years, fast forward. Now, who I am today, 
uh, multimillionaire, eight-figure business. I've generated over you know, $50 million in personal income for myself. I have 11 companies, two of them in the multi-million dollar category. One of them is an eight-figure company. We have companies in the automotive sales industry, in the real estate industry, in the beauty industry, in the entertainment industry, in the book publishing industry, in the conference industry, in the software technology industry. So again, we have, um, and then film and TV. So we have companies in eight different verticals that are diversified. You know, I have a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio of, of properties that I have. I just sold one of my, I just literally closed on one of my properties the other day. I bought a, a condo in Cherry Hill for like 134,000 about six years ago. I just sold it for 221,000, but I only put $30,000 down. I walked away with a $124,000 check uh, yesterday, like, like literally at settlement. So, I mean, ship spending $30,000 for the down payment and then all the other money for the mortgage and stuff was paid by the tenant that were in there. And then, you know, here I am. So again, I'm also a six-figure investor in Cardone Capital. Grant, I'm partners with Grant oh, Cardone. I've known Grant for like 15 years and Grant has been a partner of mine for three years. He licenses my content sorry, for Cardone On Demand. My Siri watch, sorry. So Cardone, if you go to Cardone On Demand, uh, he licenses part of my online university to his 1,000 car dealerships. So, you know, I get two checks from Grant a month. I get a check for my content for Cardone On Demand, and I get a check for my investment into Cardone Capital. You know what I mean? And then I have my own radio show because I have one of the largest platforms in the automotive industry. I have, like, the largest Facebook group, but I have the largest podcast. iHeartRadio came to me and said, you should have a radio show. And I'm like, nobody listens to radio. They said, stop being stupid. Of course they do. You know what I mean? And they explained to me how this works. So I, I built a nationally syndicated radio show called Against All Odds. And for from January 1st, 2021, we were in Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, um, Cleveland, Ohio, Rochester, New York. I was in three top 10 markets. And, you know, Saturday and Sunday, we had about 1.3 million Americans tuning in. But then I got signed to, to be the star of Vice TV's hit show. I was a teenage felon. So I'm the season finale on, on you know, uh, episode 10. And so I couldn't do five different markets for radio and do this TV show stuff. But I was really having a lot of fun with the radio and I met a ton of people, which I'll get into in a second. So I decided in, in the third quarter in July to drop my radio show down to just one market, which is Washington, D.C., because it's freaking the nation's capital one and it's a top 10 market and it's freaking close to me. Um, and, I, and so I still have my radio show, which is great because I get to meet some of the top people in the world, you know, in any type of vertical that I get to interview and pick their brains. And so, yeah, man, it, it's freaking nuts. I'm also in the National Speakers Association. I'm what's called a CSP, which is like a CPA in accounting. And I'm also what's called a million dollar speaker. It is a mastermind group that the National Speaker Association has. You have to make over a million dollars in your paid speeches. And they vet you that you have to submit tax records, accounting, and they have to. So everybody that's in that, that mastermind group knows that everybody's been vetted so you could speak freely. And it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me because if you're sitting down with other verifiable multimillionaires, not fake people that did it in the past or, or, or Facebook fraud and Instagram stunning, you get really good information, you know? And so I would say the way that I've been influenced 
the most, in my opinion, is from the National Speakers Association Connections and from my radio show, even in the last year, because when I'm reaching out to, I'll give you an example, Natasha Graziano, I don't know if you know who that is. She's ranked as the number one female motivational speaker in the world. She's got 7 million you know, followers on Instagram, and, and she's badass what she does. I met her from Clubhouse. She's interested in, you know, I interviewed her on my radio show. She's blown away by me. She invites me to be on her show for yeah. free. So she's put me on her podcast, yada, yada, yada. Now she's going to be flying in from London to keynote my event. You know what I mean? So again, I am I learned this actually from Grant. If you ever listen to anything that Cardone says, one of the things that he does with 10X is he he picks all those people, not for the audience, like he, he has John Travolta and Kevin Hart and 50 Cent there because he's interested in them and he wants to learn their tips. He identifies who he thinks is brilliant, successful, a subject matter expert, and he gets them to his event so he could learn from them and, 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 and you know, download all that stuff. Everybody else that's a Cardone fan or a follower of 10X, they get to benefit, but that's like the gravy or the sprinkles. He's doing it for him. So I, I, when he shared that with me, I'm like, you know what? So I pick my interviews specifically on people that I find interesting or subjects that I find interesting so I could learn more myself. Why? Because I'm so busy. I don't have time like a normal person that's not busy to sit and study and binge watch and read and all this other stuff. So I've got to combine my activities with my knowledge consumption and learning. So I kill three birds with one stone. One, I learned some massively important cool shit. Simultaneously, I'm creating content for my radio show, my podcast, my, my, my communities and stuff like that. And I'm also developing my network to be able to utilize that person either directly for me or somebody else that could benefit from that person. Make sense? I, with everything that you're saying, it, it, it's clear to me that this is just from clear intuition when it comes to being a businessman, being able to connect with people, network with people, because I'm sure you've interacted with people as well. Obviously, the people that you surround yourself know how to do it. Like It's like that to them, and then there's other people that have no idea how to connect with people, not only in the business world, but overall. So would you say with everything that you've experienced, especially early on, given all the illegal stuff, being able to parlay that into your current business, being able to parlay that into a radio show, which is something everybody needs, regardless of what business that you're in. Like you need to be a content creator in this day and age to promote your brand and to get it out there. Would you say that from day one, like this is the way you were wired uh, entrepreneurially? hundred percent. I mean, you can't be six years old doing the shit that I was doing or being, you know, a, 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 a preteen, you know, a 13 year old uh, and, and doing the hustles. You can't be 16 years old selling bulletproof vests to crack deals of Queens with logos on them, like Superman logos. No, this is definitely entrepreneurial. And I'm going to tell you something else. It's a superpower. Most people don't even realize this. I have like 8,000 videos published on my one channel. You know, I have about 5 million views. Just like, remember, I'm not a, I'm not I'm a car trainer. My, my main thing has been the automotive industry. And so for a car salesman to have 5 million views on YouTube is crazy. But here's my point. I have about 8,000 videos that are for free on YouTube. But I also have 6,800 produced videos for my Bradley Demand, my video on demand training, tracking, testing, certification platform. And 100% of my content, free and paid, is unscripted, unrehearsed, and 100% freestyle 
Whenever I write articles, you know, it's always overdue, like it was due, and I write the brilliant shit. I got 4,000 articles published. Whenever I jump on stage, I don't fucking plan. I freestyle shit. You could pick a subject. Like, honestly, if we have more time, we could do maybe if we do a follow-up one, like literally like a cipher. I don't care what it is. Business, real estate, networking, search engine optimization. Not only can I freestyle with it, I am uniquely skilled to reverse engineer with clinical precision, with GPS precision, the actual roadmap, how to engage these things. See, there's definitely speakers and trainers that have the ability to make you feel something, you know? And then they know how to use tone and inflection to be able to captivate your audience, to get them excited and things like that. But then there's very few people that are able to reverse engineer with tactical precision how to actually achieve the shit you just made people excited about. So, and I could do that freestyle right off the top of my head, you know? So for me, I don't believe there's a motherfucker breathing that could touch me, you know, on stage or on a freestyle type stuff, you know? Again, like, I don't care who it is. And I'm putting anybody listening to this podcast on notice. I'm talking about you, you, and you. I don't care about how many views you got on YouTube. I don't care how many, you know, followers you have. And I'm not being disrespectful. I'm just trying to say it is something that I'm very uniquely skilled at. That's like saying to, like, Eminem or, like, you know, Rakim or Papoose about freestyling. If you are a lyricist and you got bars and you're about that bar life, then I'm telling you, then again, you turn around and you talk about anything and you could freestyle for it. That's how I am with business and information. This is I study my craft, you know, very, very much. I eat shit and breathe. When I wake up, I'm Sean Bradley. When I go to sleep, my pugs know I'm Sean Bradley. You know what I mean? Right. So that's just the way that I'm wired. I mean, it's the authentic version of yourself for better or for less, right? Yes, sir. And do you think with everything that you've been through and everything that you've learned, both business, your personal life, everything that you've experienced, do you say that there's anything left that you're trying to figure out? And I guess we'll leave with that because, again, I don't want to take too much of your time. We will def- I will definitely follow up with you. There's so much more I'd love to pick your brain about. Hopefully we can get you out to the studio in Arizona whenever yeah, you No, know. definitely. We're, we're definitely going to do that. Uh, I just, right now, like, everything's kind of crazy. Okay, so, yeah, listen, man, let me just tell you something. I'm successful, but I still am a, I'm a person. So I have so much shit that I've got to deal with. You know, I'm, I have a wife, and there's a book called, you know, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus for a reason. Right. I, got a, I have a diva wife. She's an amazing. She's my queen. And I have two adult daughters, 21 and 22. So, yes, I need help every damn day, you know, dealing with, with understanding them. You know, that's one thing. My ex-wife committed suicide, you know, five years ago, the, the mother of my daughter. I have to deal with that on a daily basis, you know, uh, on, on multiple levels. I have people that depend on me. You know, I have like employees that have kids and families and every decision that I make affects them. And I care about them sincerely. And my clients, you got to understand something. My clients aren't people. My clients are all multi-billion, multi-million and publicly traded businesses. So when you at that effect on an international level, most of my clients are national, most of them, but I do have clients in Russia, Canada, Guam, Dominican Republic, et cetera. So yeah, I'm trying to figure out everything every day, how to be a better father, how to be a better husband, how to you know, maximize time even more, how to you know, do more, spend less, how to, you know, yeah, man, every day I'm trying to find how to do more. But I want to tell you what's my focus right now is I'm transitioning from just focusing on automotive. Like I've helped so many dealerships and automotive professionals for, you know, over 
about 18 years now, I'm now with this whole vice situation doing this to the general public, you know what I mean? And so for me, that's what I'm really focused on right now is November 22nd, Vice is releasing the season finale to millions and millions of households, and they're going to show an hour special about my life and how I went from all the stuff I just said to where I'm at now. And my whole thing is this, if I can do that for myself, can you imagine what I could do for the public, you know, for doctors, dentists, entrepreneurs, or whatever, on so many different levels? Well, I appreciate you taking the time, man. Thanks so much for being gracious enough to take the last hour to uh, share some of your story. And again, I have so much more I'd love to talk to you about if we could uh, hook up sometime down the line. I know you got a plethora of things on your plate, obviously, uh, but well-deserved, obviously. You know how to work it. You're obviously very passionate about what you do, and uh, I wish you the best of luck in your future, and I can't wait to learn more, uh, and I can't wait to watch the Vice series starting November 22nd, man. That's awesome. Well, listen, um, just to let you know, uh, I have a lot of clients in Arizona, and then I just got connected with a guy named Peter, and he just did Brad's show on Dropping Bombs. He's actually on the TV show as well, but he's, he's episode five from a couple of weeks ago. He's based out of Arizona. He wound up doing 12 years in prison, came home, and he worked for a big dealership called Mark Kia out there. Okay. So, yeah. So again, he's going to be, uh, I think, coming to, yeah, he's going to definitely be coming to our premiere. Um, I don't know what you're doing November 22nd, man, but you know that I have a major premiere in Philadelphia, right? Oh, wow. Really? Dude, it's going to be pretty big. I have, uh, yeah, we're doing, we shut down the landmark uh, Ritz Theater. So we have a theater in Center City, Philadelphia. It's a total private event. We're looking at probably about 150 guests, celebrities, pro athletes, people from season one, people from season two, people from Netflix. We're going to have, um, you know, I have one of my friends as an actor that was on the Cosby show and he was the star of the movie Hairspray. You know, oh, yeah. going to be there. And, um, yeah, so if you want, man, uh, again, this is how chill I am with just network and stuff. You're more than welcome to attend. And I have people flying in from all over the country to attend. So I know you're on the West Coast, but I got people coming from Arizona and from California. So you're invited to come. It's going to be from 8.30 p.m. to 11 p.m. in Philly. Pretty pretty dope. Well, I'm definitely going to get your contact in for, the, for that because I will be back in the East Coast for that Thanksgiving week. So I will be in touch for that, man. And again... Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, that's going to be a blast, actually. Perfect. I'm definitely going to take you up on that now that I think good. about it. No, no, for real, good. So here's what I'm going to do is as soon as you stop recording, I'm going to give you my, my phone number, and then I got to jump to another meeting real quick. All right, well, let's wrap this up. This was The O Show, episode 440, presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness, Sean V. Bradley. This is an episode you want to check out, guys. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.